Well, good morning, everybody. Let's uh, just get started here. I know we usually stand and read a passage, but we're not going to do that today, because today's going to be a little different. Uh, next week, we will be starting um, our new series in Second Peter, uh, just in case any of you want to read ahead and, ca- and see what the book's about. But uh, since I knew we'd be starting a new sermon series next week, I thought I would take the opportunity to do something different today. Uh, and to just introduce you to a new direction that we will be taking at Genesis House. Um, just like you as parents, you care about the future of your children, and you think a lot about you know, who they're going to marry, what kind of work they're going to get, or you know, uh, how they're going to do in school, or if you're single, you think about your own future, you know, and what direction God has for you. Um, I'm like that as a pastor, I constantly think about our church, and you in it, and where we're headed. So there's been a recurring theme that's been going over my, in my mind uh, for many months, and it was prevalent through 2018, and I wanted to share that with you today. And basically, the, the, the recurring theme was this, that there's a need in our church to become a house of prayer. So before introducing you to why, I just want to remind you a bit of what our core values are in our church already. Our core values are um, relational discipleship, church planting, and relational evangelism. Uh, this is right from our website. I just copied it word for word. This is, this is what's on our website, if you weren't aware. Our relational discipleship at Genesis House is that our belief at Genesis House is that, that the true discipleship takes place within a relationship. As a result, we regularly seek to be involved in each other's lives, encouraging and teaching one another in hopes that the true spiritual transformation can take place within the life of every person. So again, we don't, we don't teach programs like come learn to disciple someone for six weeks and go off. That doesn't, we don't believe in that. Discipleship's a lifelong learning process. And it requires relationships. You have to invest one's life into one another. And I know that this part in our church is going fairly well, or reasonably well. Um, I've seen many changes in your lives over the last five years as we've been a church plant. I've seen uh, these pers- this personal changes take root in your life in spiritual ways. Uh, places in like finances, uh, places in, in marital issues, uh, how you parent your children, dealing with unforgiveness. There's been multiple victories in these areas. And it's directly in part to our just focus on discipleship at this church. And not just by me. It's not like a one-man show. I've seen you all take interest in one another. And where God's taught you something, you've taught others as well. So it's been a shared, a shared uh, vision. And for me, it's exciting because we're, we're doing this as, a body, as the body of Christ. So again, I, I'm very thankful for the discipleship ministry we have here. But the second and third core values are as follows. Relational evangelism and church planting. So I'll read you what we have here. Our belief at Genesis House is that evangelism best takes place within a trusted relationship. As a result, we encourage all our members to build genuine relationships with non-Christian people in hopes of gaining their, true, uh, their trust and respect so that, so that through that trust, opportunities to share the message of Jesus may be given in a loving and gentle manner. And uh, church planting is as follows. Uh, we believe that church planting is the most effective way for growing the kingdom of God. As a result, our desire one day is to plant a sister church somewhere in Okotoks or the surrounding area. So it's these last two key areas that have been weighing on me for some time now. And one impacts the other. If non-believers aren't coming to Christ, there is no possibility of church planting. <laughs> 
However, if non-believers are coming to Christ and we outgrow our space, there is the possibility of church planting. So one affects the other. And this is where um, this, these areas have been weighing on me for some time now because it's, n it's not been happening in Genesis House to the degree that I was expecting when the first church planted. Now listen carefully, I'm not saying it's not happening. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that I haven't heard many of you say, I've had a conversation with so-and-so, I've shared the gospel with so-and-so, I've built a new relationship with my neighbor, and so on and so forth. It is happening, and I do know there are conversations happening. But as a general statement, as a collective body, we're not making a spiritual impact in the community. To at least to my knowledge. And you, this is why we have dialogue. You can push back and fight me in the end, and I will, I'll take it uh, on the chin. Like a good boxer, hopefully you won't knock me out. But uh, I just don't believe that we're, the proof is in the pudding, for example, because in five and a half years, hardly anyone has come to Christ in our ministry, and virtually uh, nobody unsaved comes through our doors. Uh, virtually all of our growth in this church is transference. One church family coming to our church, for example, or vice versa. Now, some might say, well, Andrew, that's just a sign of the times. Uh, the church everywhere is in decline, so be grateful because at least you guys have grown. Well, I am grateful that we're growing and in terms of like our own spiritual lives. I'm grateful we have a viable church and that five years ago this, church, this community didn't exist. But I'm not... Great. I'm not going to accept the fact that churches everywhere are in decline, so I'm not to feel bad about that. You know, Stephen Elliott, uh, uh, an author I read, he did his dissertation in uh, just churches in Canada in general and where they're at. So he, like, we usually when we get stats, it's North American stats. But this is like, and usually entails the United States. This is Canada only. So in Canada, between 1995 and 2005, so 10 years, Church attendance dropped between 7 to 20% in evangelical churches. 7 to 20% in evangelical churches in 10 years. And that was in 2005, so now we're almost 15 years ahead of that. And those stats are, will be bigger. Or at least equal to. But someone might say, well, people aren't spiritually hungry and they're not interested in spiritual issues. What's very interesting is he wrote this in his book. Sorry, get this going here. Wicca grew by 281% in Canada in those same 10 years. Just so you know what Wicca is, it's happening behind here in my old gym. You can go there and people will do witchcraft and tarot card readings and angels answers and all this stuff. My gym, which we sold two years ago, is full of women who teach you how to basically engage in Wicca. 281% growth in 10 years in Canada, while the evangelical church dropped by 7 to 20%. Native spirituality grew by 175%, Islam by 128%, and Hinduism by 89%. Don't tell me that the nation isn't spiritually hungry. They are hungry. They just, aren't hung they just are hungry for other things. So what's going on there? Well, there's, that's a huge debate within the church circles. But I can tell you what the scripture has to say, to make it very simple. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have the, this ministry, this is Paul speaking with, about him and Timothy, 
we do not lose heart. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. And here's the thing, we're not going to win these people by serving them through charitable deeds. First, Genesis House doesn't have the time, the manpower, or the resources to outcompete the clubs that exist in the voluntary avenues that exist in this community. Can't do it. Secondly, we have nothing to offer the community in terms of physical needs anyway. Many of the people in our community are farther ahead in the area of, of prosperity and physical needs than we are in our own church. So what do we have to offer them? We have, to, we, have the op, we have to offer them spiritual needs and not physical needs. So the question is, how are we going to do this? Well, initially, the platform at Genesis House to meet the spiritual needs of unbelievers is relational evangelism. That's the, that was the original platform. We're still going to continue that as God provides opportunities, but that's not going to shake it. In five and a half years, that we're not teaming with unbelievers who've come to Christ. And it's due to spiritual hunger, 281% in 10 years devoted themselves to Wicca that weren't normally part of it before. So what are we going to do? The key verse that's been going on in my head over and over and over, and I, it's probably the Lord that put it there, is from Mark 11:17. As he taught them, Jesus said this, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Sorry, is it, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, just for clarification, God wasn't giving me this verse to say this, you made my house a den of robbers. That's the application that I wasn't to take. But he says, as your house, as Genesis' house, a house of prayer. No, it's not that we don't pray. We open the service in prayer. I pray before the sermon. We close the service in prayer. And once in a while, in special times, we pray together as a community. But as a general statement, we are not known as a praying church collectively. Yes, some of us might pray individually, but we don't pray collectively. And if we're a prayerless church, we will be a powerless church. So the new emphasis in our church will be a change in, in making this place into a house of prayer. Especially in the corporate setting on Sunday mornings. It'll be a time to offer God praise, thanksgiving, a time to plead with him to go ahead of us in saving the lost in our community. Jesus said this in John 64, that basically salvation is his initiative. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. So we need the Lord to go ahead of us. So I want to spend some time looking at different verses in the scriptures that basically speak about prayer at both the corporate and individual level. 
that show us how the prayer is the key catalyst in bringing about spiritual transformation and revival to a lost community. So we'll start with Mark 11, verse 17, in this verse here. Remember the scene. Jesus has walked into the temple, and he's noticed that it's basically turned into a giant marketplace. People are buying and selling in order to make huge profits off of people who have traveled miles and miles to Jerusalem in order to worship God at the Passover. So they've come with their sacrifices, and they've walked in, and the people at the money changers have said, these sacrifices aren't sufficient enough. Let me sell you this one instead, and then charge them whatever, three, four, five, ten times the amount of money that it's worth. And they have to take the sacrifice because they're not allowed to worship God without it. So they've turned this whole thing into a, a giant bazaar, a giant market, making huge profits. Jesus says, I rate, he starts flipping over tables. Because this place should have been a place for the pilgrims to come and worship, bring their petitions before God and prayers before him. It should have been silent. And just the voices of people crying out to God in prayer, thousands upon thousands of them. It would have fit thousands in the court of Gentiles. If you see a picture of the temple, it could fit thousands. The temple used to be a place of prayer in Israel. You remember 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11? Hannah, she was barren. She wanted a child. Um, a woman was mocking her for being barren and making fun of her. Where did she go to cry out to God? For to, be, to basically be vindicated of this mockery and to maybe have a kid one day? She went to the temple. In 1 Kings 8, 29-30, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord after the Ark of the Covenant comes there from the city of David and arrives in Jerusalem. What does Solomon do? He breaks out into a massive prayer service and thanks to God for the temple and the Ark of the Covenant coming there. But then he speaks about the purpose of the temple in the future. And I'll summarize his words in 1 Kings 8, 29-30. He basically says, This place, Lord, in the future will not only be a place for sacrifice, but it will be a place to bring petitions forward for people to pray, confess their sins, and find forgiveness. In Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist wrote this, One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Now, we don't have the temple in Okotoks. <clears throat> but nobody else in the world does except Jerusalem. But it's not required in order for us to worship and bring our prayers before God and still fulfill this commandment or this purpose. Do you know why? Because for the Gentile Christians, the church is the temple. I don't have time to get into it in this sermon, but it's a phenomenal study. It's an, I maybe we'll do it one day. It's really well worth looking at all the verses in Scripture that speak about the church basically replacing the temple. That basically God's purpose is and the Spirit coming and indwelling us. He, remember, once He indwells us and we receive Jesus Christ, we become the temple of God. We learned that in 1 Peter. So when, when, when people become Christians, they actually become the church. Now, you don't need to have a building to be a church. You just need to have the Holy Spirit and be a body of believers to be the church. It just so happens that bodies of believers meet in a building called a church. 
Alright, so when we say you are the church, someone might say, well, you don't need a building to be a church. I say, yeah, you're right. But it's probably why is it corporately that the body of believers who are the church meet in a church or meet in a building of some kind. So for the first time in our lives, we've been meeting in a church instead of a house, even though we've always been a church. So when Christ's church gathers, they're to be known for devoted devotion to prayer. And it's through prayer that God gets involved on a supernatural basis to bring about spiritual transformation. Not only in the lives of the unbelieving world, but in our lives as well as Christians. So turn with me now to Matthew 9, 36. I want to rock you through about four passages about the necessity for prayer in the house of God. And what God will do, what He promises to do if we devote ourselves to prayer. Look at Matthew 9, 36. Give you the context first. Jesus is going through the region of Galilee. He's going through cities and villages, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and healing everyone. And then he says this, or then it says this, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of his harvest to send up workers into his harvest. The word beseech, and some of your translations may have this, is basically to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. And there's a belief from Jesus that through prayer, God would stir up more workers in the kingdom of God to share the gospel in the, un, in the unbelieving world. This is important to notice because those people who in Christianity who believe and take the attitude that God, that everything by God is predetermined and fixed. There's people that believe that. Like once God basically... God doesn't change. So once He's predetermined something, it's going to happen. But if that's true, there's no point in prayer. But here, Jesus says, if it's predetermined how many people are going to be Christians and how many workers are going to be, what's the point of prayer? But He's saying here, you, can, you pray so that the more workers become part of the kingdom. So that Jesus believed that their prayer lives would influence God to propel more workers into the kingdom. Now, how he does that is his prerogative, but he would change the hearts of other people, prepare their lives in other places so that they would be used in ministry one day. But clearly, Jesus believed that our prayers here could impact the kingdom of God by bringing more workers into the harvest. And that's what we need in Okotoks. The Apostle Paul understood this as well. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. Verse 18. Ephesians 6.18 Paul writes this With all prayer and petition pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with, with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak Paul is calling the church into corporate prayer life here. And there's two key areas. One, for all the saints. Pray for all the fellow believers. Now, if you go back to verse 10, you're going to see why. Because he talks about putting on the full armor of God because you're, you're fighting against the devil. So you've got to pray for one another in the, corp, in the corporate body to resist the, in the category of resisting the devil and all his schemes. 
which many of us fall for on a daily basis, or can fall on a daily basis. But at the same time, he then asks them to pray for him. But look at the categories in which he asks for prayer. Remember, he's a missionary, he's a worker in the kingdom, and he asks for prayer in two categories. First one is that his words would basically be more clear and he'd have the right words to say. I pick that up in verse 19. He says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the mystery. So, Paul already knows the gospel message. He knows it. I mean, the guy's a genius. He's probably the most important man in Scripture next to, to Jesus in terms of wisdom. But he says, there's a way in which I can deliver the message that basically you can pray for me in a way that will come out in a different way for more clarity or, more, or more, with more purpose or whatever. So again, he believed that they could influence his prayer life in the way he gave the gospel message. But secondly, he actually, he actually asked him to pray for boldness in verse 19. Wow, that's an incredible area to pray for. And then you can all relate to that, I'm sure. Most of us struggle with insecurities and fears and failures and all sorts of things in sharing the message of Christ. We need boldness. Paul said, pray for me to have boldness. You think, Paul, you need boldness? Listen, this guy was human with flesh and bones just like you and me. There's a powerful verse in Acts chapter 18 I want you to see with me. about He, he wrestled with insecurities and fears as well, just like you and I do. He'd been preaching the gospel. Life had been up and down in terms of the way he'd been physically treated. And look at this, this comment in Acts 18, 9 and 10. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul was going through fears and failures because he'd been getting the life kicked out of him basically for sharing the message of Jesus and rejection and so on and so forth. But Paul believes the Ephesian church, pray for my boldness because that's something God can influence in my life. Remember the Acts church? They prayed for boldness. And the place was shaken. And they went out and proclaimed the gospel. We see similar themes and instruction given to the church in Thessalonica. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. We again see Paul's appeal to the church for a call to prayer. In the Ephesian church, we saw what their prayer requests were for for Paul. It was for clarity, basically how to conduct his speech, and for boldness. This time it's a little different but it's still in the same category. Here he's asking for the speed at which the message would go out. He says here, pray that, the, that, the, that the, the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. So it's a quickness and a, and a deliverance of the message that he was not, not, a, not a, like a stutter, but basically a quick transition of the word going forward. So he's praying for, he asked the church to pray for this. 
but then he also asked for protection. He protection from those who would seek to harm them, who didn't like the message that they were bringing. And so, so again, same category, it's in the area of proclaiming the gospel message, but now it's to do with speed and protection and not clarity and boldness. But the main point again is that Paul's belief that the Thessalonian church would corporately devote themselves to prayer in these areas, they could invoke God to move and act and make a change in the spreading of the message of Jesus Christ. And I'll give you one more in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Colossians 4.2, just a couple of pages before Thessalonians. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the, time, the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Similar themes once again in proclaiming the gospel. Paul believed that God would supernaturally get involved if they devoted themselves to prayer. In the first category, that he would actually supernaturally open up doors. Those are exactly his words. That God will open up a door for the word. So Paul believed that the way the Colossians prayed, so it would be, if they were to devote themselves to prayer, Paul would get more opportunities to share the gospel than if they didn't. You see the correlation? If the church is silent, nothing happens comparatively to if they're voicing their prayers to God corporately. Paul's going to get opportunities, but he's going to get more opportunities if the church is praying behind him. So he asks for, he believes that God will open up doors through prayer. Second though, he is back to the Ephesians. He believes that he can then be given clarity again on how to speak in verse 4. That I may speak it clear in the way I ought to speak. Again, so you know how it is when you give the gospel or try to talk to people. Sometimes you feel like a total idiot in the way you say something and wish you could have taken it back and tried that conversation again because you're not clear. God, if we pray for one another, we can make it so that when we go to present the gospel truths that we would be more clear and more clear and more clear or if we didn't feel that we were clear, the Spirit would use our message to make it clear to that person. <laughs> but the point is again is that God believed that He could influence the way Paul would speak. A guy that probably had the entire Old Testament memorized verse by verse. He was a, he was a genius in his day. He had masters of divinity in about eight different categories of life in Christianity. But again, this is really important. So when you review all these areas in terms of ministry service, this is what prayer can accomplish. More workers, open doors, speed of message, Clarity of content, boldness to share. These are things that we can pray for in the church to invoke God into action when we corporately pray and do not make us house of dinner hours, but make up the house of prayer. And it's the prayer lives of the early Christians that led thousands to come into Christ in the book of Acts. Uh, there was 120 gathered in the upper room. And they were, it says they were constantly devoting themselves to, to the word and to prayer. And then in Acts chapter 4, it says that they were with one mind, lifting their voice before God. And what happened was, as you know, thousands broke out. A rival, basically. Thousands came to the Lord. 
uh, in the early days of the early church. Now what's interesting, someone might say, well that's just Acts. I mean, that's not today. You can't prescribe Acts to our church today. I uh, studied every single spiritual revival that I could find on the internet, looking them up to see when they were, who were part of them, what happened. Do you know the, uh, the amazing thing about every single one of those revivals that have broken out? Not one of them started without corporate prayer. Not one. God didn't just start acting. He never once started acting. He responded to the people of the church. Sometimes one or two people would gather privately for an hour or two, faithfully every day, or, they would, or sometimes it would be massive groups for weeks, whatever. None of the revivals started without corporate prayer. Nothing. I'm going to read you one right now. If I can find my book. Pardon me? Oh yeah, thanks. I've been looking for a long time. <laughs> I heard that. In 1836, the ministry of Methodist preacher James Cai in the northeastern United States was very unremarkable. There's a nice title for a pastor. A ministry that was unremarkable. It was averaged by every account. But eventually this pastor came to an understanding that effective ministry was inseparably tied to a prayerful dependence upon the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And then he committed himself to prayer. And these are some of the things that happened. He, or he believed that there was an absolute necessity of the immediate influence of the Holy Spirit to impart power and success to a preached gospel. The absolute necessity of praying more frequently, more fervently, more perseveringly, and more believingly for the aid of the Holy Spirit in ministry. Then, he later, then it says this, As a result of his newfound dependence on the Holy Spirit and his commitment to prayer, Reverend Cahey's ministry exploded with supernatural manifestations, resulting in seven continuous years of revival services in America and England, which led to approximately 22,000 conversions and the dramatic transformation of entire communities. One of the people directly impacted by his ministry was a young man named William Booth, who was the foundation of the Salvation Army. I'll give you one more. It's called the uh, Businessman's Revival from 1857. In 1857, America went through its worst depression prior to the Great Depression of the early 20th century. Millions of Americans were without work and seemingly without hope. Things were especially bad in big cities. Jeremiah Lamphere was a lay missionary who worked for the North Dutch Reformed Church in New York City. In September 1857, Lamphere invited businessmen all over New York to come to the North Dutch Church for one hour during their lunch break every Wednesday to do nothing but pray for revival. By January of 1858, which is only like four months later, Similar prayer meetings were being held at churches all over New York City. Some churches were even hosting daily prayer meetings during their lunch hour. The New York prayer meetings inspired similar prayer movements in, all, in other cities such as Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Charleston. By the time the revival ebbed in the fall of 1858, around one million Americans had converted and joined churches, and as many as one million of the four million existing church members also converted almost all of them 
Yeah, sorry. Yeah, one, one million of the 404 million existing church members also converted. Here's the point. There were one million new converts who weren't attending church. There were one million who became Christians who were already attending church. Because just because we meet in the church doesn't make, make us Christian. People understood the gospel for the first time in a whole new way when they were sitting in those services, even though they'd been hearing the message before. 25% of the existing church converted to Christ. That's incredible to me. So what's going to happen at Genesis House? I'm not saying we're going to pray in expectation of revival. I'm not going to join with you guys in prayer saying, God, bring, like, do revival, do revival. And that's my expectation of Him. If God wants to bring that, that's His business. That's not mine. And if he does that for us, then that, then phenomenal. But that's not why we're going to him in prayer. Again, if he does it, fantastic. But that's not, the, that's not we're, we're, we're not going to judge success and pursuance of God in prayer based on whether he does, converts 30,000 people in Okotoks or not. What we are going to pray for is that God opens up the hearts and the minds of the spiritually blind in our community that Satan has done such a good job of according to 2 Corinthians. Pray for boldness in our own lives. Pray for change in our own lives. Pray for open doors, clarity of speech, and so on and so forth. And we need it because the relational evangelism can still be part of our ministry. Maybe God, by praying this way, relational evangelism becomes a platform by which we do ministry. But I can tell you this much, the way things are going after five and a half years, we're not shaking up the community of Okotoks. And I don't, I don't see how we're going to unless we commit ourselves in these ways. I'll leave you with uh, three lessons. One, God can be supernaturally invoked into action by opening up doors for evangelism through prayer. Through devoted, through devoted corporate prayer, God can be supernaturally invoked into action by opening up the doors for evangelism. He can do it through stirring the hearts amongst Christian people by producing more workers. So maybe we've been sitting on the shelf for a long time and through prayer God changes our lives and says, I want you to be active. Stop being passive. Get out there. Be active. But I'm scared, Lord. I know you are. I'll pray for boldness. But I'm not very smart. I'll pray for clarity of speech. Etc. Etc. <laughs> right? You can work on your hearts in those ways. You can work on my hearts in those ways. You can also work on the hearts of the unbelievers and remove the veils from Satan that he's put in them, making them blind in 2 Corinthians 4. A right to hear truth as Wicca, native spirituality, Hinduism, Mormonism, all these cults leave them hopeless and empty. Second lesson. God can provide believers with boldness to share their faith with others through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of us struggle with fear and anxiety. See, so did Paul. He saw that in Acts, and that's why he prayed, asked the church twice, or, or, or sorry, once in Ephesians, help me with boldness. The Acts church prayed, help us with boldness. Of course they would. Man, they just crucified Jesus Christ and now they're committing, to, committing their lives and making a public declaration through baptism they belong to Him? Of course they need boldness. They're scared out of their tree because if they crucified Him, what's next for their fate? I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. 
Third lesson. I don't know what happened there. Should have done that. God can provide believers with clarity of speech when sharing the gospel message. And again, we all can use more of that. So how are we going to change at this church then? Every Sunday from now on, we're going to have an intentional time of corporate prayer to start in the beginning of the service. So we'll do the same. We'll sing our songs. We'll, uh, we'll uh, do the dialogue. We'll keep, continue to preach the Word of God like we do. We're not going to change anything. We're going to add corporate prayer. But what we're going to do is we're not going to say, I'm not going to ask you for requests, like, you know, what do you, what do you like, what do you, you know, this and that and the other. What we're going to do is I would like to create a team of people who want to commit to this ministry. So what's going to happen is um, I'd like to have at least five of you because there's sometimes five weeks in a month and sometimes four. But if we have five, we'll guarantee we can, we can um, cover the, every single week. But I'd like to do what we do with nursery or what we do with the food downstairs. I'd like to create a rotation. And what your responsibility will be to do is you come up here and you lead the church in corporate prayer. Now, I'll help you. I'll meet that person every single week. And my role is to, was to we, 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 we work together on what passage you're going to present, what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. And my goal will be to shepherd you through that prayer and help you lead. And, and you're, not, you're not the only one speaking. You're just facilitating. You're getting it going, and then the, we leave it up to the whole church to pray afterwards corporately. So if you would like to be part of this team, I need, I'd like five minimum, please come and speak to me over the next week. And say, Andrew, I would like to serve as a prayer leader in this church. You don't have to be, doesn't matter if you're male or female. I don't care. God asks us to corporately play. It's not gender specific. So please, uh, if you'd like to lead the church in prayer, I would love to help you walk through that. And we're going to do that from now on. And that's part of my job to train you how to do that and to, and to walk you through that process. So that's, we won't probably uh, start next week because I need to spend at least a couple weeks gathering together names that people would like to join that ministry and also spending time getting you prepared for how to do that ministry as well. So if, uh, if you already are a strong prayer warrior in your private life, that's already a sign that you'd be great for this job. You're already committed to prayer. What's the difference between doing it in your room and doing it here? You get it started and then we follow your lead. And then we corporately pray as a church. If you're nervous and scared, then that's a great place to be as well. Because uh, basically, uh, I'm, my heart's beating a lot faster every single Sunday I step up here to preach the Word of God. I may look calm, but my heart's a little bit on the edge every time I stand up here. I'm always nervous coming up here. It doesn't mean I can't. We can't fulfill a mandate. And God uses the humble, not the proud, to get His message across.